I want to go ahead and just kick things off. And and Michelle, if you would please, you know, share with the listeners, uh, you know, a, 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 your career journey, you know, uh, where you started, uh, all the way up to what you're doing now, um, would be really, really appreciated. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Uh, so, you know, my career really started not as a heavy participant in athletics or fitness, uh, but more on the enthusiastic, you know, kind of fitness enthusiast level and much more on the academic side. Uh, so, you know, as I often have kind of mentioned in conversations, I was, for all intents and purposes, a very shy and unathletic chubby kid. And so, my foray into this industry was never around some sort of athletic prowess that converted into, you know, my desire to want to help people and kind of, you know, achieve high levels of performance for others because I myself had been there. Uh, that was not the case for me. Uh, what I what I'd done is followed to a certain degree in my brother's footsteps in the sense that he got me into a fitness kind of endeavor uh, just through his access to it, his, you know, his he he stole all the athletic genes, I'll say, uh, and I I was I was left with none, and so my you know my passion, my enthusiasm, and my desire for wanting to lean into this industry more broadly was on the academic side. So when I took my graduate and undergraduate studies at the University of Alberta in Canada, uh, that was really where kind of the bug got me, so to speak, where I was really curious. I was really passionate about under, trying to understand this complexity called the human body. And so as I went through my uh, academic career, I had an opportunity to work in lockstep with Richard Boyd, who co-founded PTA Global and PT on the Net, and really rubbed shoulders with other folks that were talking about education. They were talking about information. They were talking about uh, body training, you know, that sort of thing in a much more cerebral way. And so that fed my appetite to want to continue. And that led me mainly into the fitness industry. Um, but my background, my, my passion was always taking a look at the idea of fitness, but also the idea of health and biology and what makes biology sustainable. And so that to me was always in my kind of in my head as you know, I was matriculating through my experience in fitness. Um, and so through that journey, uh, obviously as an educator, I, I had an opportunity to get in front of folks because others that had mentored and opened doors for me allowed me to get in front of uh, an audience. And also working with other people uh, allowed me to kind of get into the creative realm where I developed a product called Viper and, and now Viper Pro, which is the new iteration of it. And we took that to market some years ago and, you know, impacted the industry on a on a level that was more farm kid related. Our, our view was what makes farm kids so strong in alternative and odd positions relative to city kids. Not to suggest that city kids or gym kids, you know, worse and farm kids better. It's not that at all. It's uh, much more complicated conversation but there is an advantage to looking at what makes farm kids strong and so that ex exploration really led down the genesis of viper pro and viper with a colleague named simon bennett who is a high performance director for the nhl uh, national league hockey and uh, so we brought that to market and then you know in doing so we also i also founded uh, iom 
uh, which is a is an applied health and human performance company, which I think we'll talk about. And that really sets up the flavor of, can I look at fitness? Can I look at high performance? Can I look at outcomes, not just in the specificity of physical activity and fitness and performance, but also equally indexing this idea of health? And I think we're going to dig into that because once I have perspective of health as well as fitness and performance, everything I look at in terms of inputs starts to be flavored in a slightly different way. And so which solutions, strategy, programming, education, and what we might even call future building, uh, lies in the crossroads of taking a look at health, sustainability, as well as fitness and performance. And so that really is our perspective on things. And so as of late, our company has leaned in to you know, three areas within the industry, which is fitness, uh, high performance, that could be elite performance for an athlete, or that could be I'm 87 years old and I want to live an independent life. That's performance for me. And then the third one is healthcare. And not on the reactionary medicine side, but certainly on the proactive prevention side of the ledger, we are in uh, the healthcare and the health coaching end of things as well. So those three arms represent a focus for our business at IOM. And so kind of broadly, that's my journey from you know elementary school shy kid to right now as of current, and we've got our 24 staff members uh, that are leaning into that as well as a collective. So what that may offer for us. Wow, what a journey. You know, I, Michelle, uh, I, I had no idea. Um, I've only had a few opportunities to really chat with you. I never would have guessed uh, you were the shy chubby kid. That was me. Um, it's amazing how, you know, uh, we all come from different paths into this industry. So thank you for sharing that. Um, something I'm going to throw out there. Now, I typically try to shut my mouth and just uh, listen and ask questions, but I'm, I'm proud of this one. I wanted to throw it out there. I just this morning had a physical therapy appointment. I've got a little patellar tendonitis going on, and uh, I had met with this uh, uh, PT last week, and I told him about Viper Pro. I told him about you, and uh, so I was really impressed. I showed up this morning for an appointment, and he had looked it up. He had gone to your website. We had some discussion around it. And what was really cool for me, me to be able to share with him is what when I first learned of Viper Pro, Viper Viper Pro from Rodney, uh, co-founder of PTA Global, mentor of mine, he described to me exactly what you mentioned about the farm kids. And that was me. I grew up farming. I grew up bucking hay. I grew up shoveling ditches, running chainsaws, stacking brush, moving sprinklers, all those things you do on a farm. Never touched weights. Uh, played football, did well at it. Uh, I was able to uh, get in and play in college. And um, it was a humiliating experience in the weight room, my first year of college. These guys were doing bench presses and squats and you know all the, the deadlifts and so forth. And it, I mean, I could barely move the thing. Uh, it was humiliating. But when we got out and had to put hands on each other, it was a whole different story. And I was the one starting. Um, so it, it really resonated with me uh, to hear that story and what you know, what led you to the idea of creating that programming and that methodology. So there's just a little bit, I try to not, you know, throw stuff in, but 
I love that. And, and right. certainly that's how I, I program training for my son because that's the reality of movement. Sure. And, you know, if we dig into that, I think as an, as an organization, as a general perspective, we tend not to look at binary uh, perspectives. And what I mean by that is this is right or this is wrong or this is better and this is worse. Because, you know, it, when we're talking about biology, it's pretty complex. When we're talking about systems biology, it's infinitely complex. So in taking a look at that, you know, it's not the gym kid worse, farm kid better, as I alluded to before. If you take a farm kid in the gym, as you just mentioned, advantage gym kid. Uh, if you take a gym kid to a multi-directional odd position scenario, i.e. a chaotic environment like sport, typically advantage farm kid. And so you've got these two advantages. And we saw the same thing, Dan, when we actually took our first raw product, you know, like when we just did prototypes, to the professional sports. So we took it to NHL athletes, and it was a similar thing, right? So we always knew that farm kids did well in professional hockey, right? Some of the toughest players on the puck were farm kids, right? And so digging the puck out of the corner, if you're you know, familiar with hockey, ice hockey, uh, in front of the net, uh, we had you know, multitudes of examples of athletes that were actually in the Hall of Fame that scored most of their goals in front of the net. Uh, we had experience with taking those same athletes in the gym and they would squat and bench press what would be considered a feeble weight. And yet they were some of the strongest athletes on the puck in on the ice. And so it was a disconnect, right? What was achieved in terms of a strength outcome in a linear pattern that was preset tended not, anecdotally, tended not to be transferred necessarily in an you know in a, in a full bat a full body combative environment like that like you've just shared, so that was the anecdotal evidence, right? So we heard of this story a long time, and we thought, well, let's try, try to create a bale of hay that you could put in the gym without a bunch of straw or hay, you know, messing up the gym. And so that was you know in very loose terms, that was kind of the idea of of Viper and Viper Pro is that no moving parts. It's a mass of different sizes. And we can move that mass around our body or with our body as we triangulate variability of stress. And it's a submaximal load. And so that afforded us, because there's an inverse relationship between load and degrees of freedom. As the load goes up as a percent of one RM, degrees of freedom go down. So we're gonna have to get linear as load goes up, which is awesome, but not so much if we want lines of stress that are omnidirectional and variable, which we might call vector variability. And so what submaximal load offers us is an increase uh, exposure to lines of stress in omnidirectional ways, which reinforces the tissue remodeling in omnidirectional load, which is all about shape stability. That's why you know, your farm kids are very stable in all these weird positions because that's the exposure of stress that they put on their body. And so taking that, kind of anecdotal evidence and then taking a look at tissue behaviors in the academic world, right? It's very evident of what happens with shape stability when you add omnidirectional force, when the tissue begins to remodel, not just on the sagittal plane, but in rotation, in spiral, in the frontal plane, in the transverse planes. Because what happens, what ensues because of that is this kind of this idea of tensegrity this idea of omnidirectional shape stability. 
And once there is shape stability from the skin, from the fascia, from the muscular system and everything else, there tends to be more body-wide stability because that's, that's shape stability. And with a more stable environment, you can generate more force because, you know, as Paul Cech used to say, you can't fire a cannon from a canoe. In other words, you can't generate, uh, you know, force from an unstable situation. And, you know, just that that's pretty evident when you try to push something when you're standing on ice. Everything tends to shut down. You can't produce that much force. So, you know, the idea of stability in a farm kid and then the, the idea of force generation from that farmer who's extremely stable becomes very self-evident both anecdotally and, you know, from kind of the academic, you know, research perspective. So, you know, we see evidence of that. And what we would characterize is that both the gym environment and kind of the farm quote unquote environment is absolutely essential to consider because they offer different advantages. And they're not categorical in their in their advantage. It's not as if they just advantage farm kid no matter what, and that's all we ought to do. I think that's the wrong way of thinking about it. It's instead what we should do is consider what is really important on the farm and what is really important as it relates to the gym environment, because one could argue. Michelle, I lost your audio. I'm not sure if uh, if it's on my end or if you've got a uh, bad Wi-Fi connection. Not sure if you heard me. And if anybody else is noticing that, pop it in the panel. Yeah. Okay, Leslie, thank you. Michelle, we lost your audio. I think you've got a bad uh, internet connection, if you can hear me. Boy, this is quite a Friday, isn't it? Oh, I think he's logging back in. So, listeners, I hope you're enjoying this. And in case you didn't know, uh, in our education at PTA Global, in our Certified Personal Trainer course and our Behavior Change and Exercise course, uh, Michelle teaches tensegrity, functional anatomy, myofascial lines, a very holistic look at the core, uh, unlike anything you've probably ever seen. So if you want to learn more, that that's a couple of places you can find more of that. There he is. Am I back? Yeah, I, I got all that. So yeah, we, uh, nice, uh, nice, nice, nice save there, Dan. <laughs> Appreciate the <interject. laughs> Well, um, I mean, that's how I started learning from you, no doubt. Yeah, so I'm not sure when I dropped off, but um, you know, we're we're taking a look at you know fundamentally what types of inputs matter as it relates to either a look at programming and you know a look at who we're who we're interacting with. You know, the idea of is it creating bigger, stronger, faster athletes? Great. I think we need to consider both the gym environment and what we would learn from the farm environment, the farm kids in generations past. Uh, it may also be not the athlete, but just someone who wants ready, you know, readiness and wants sustainability. And they also have to have resiliency, right? And I wouldn't say the new farmers, but certainly farmers from generations past were certainly resilient. You know, you look at the grandpa 
of generations past and you shake that farmer's hand who was the grandpa and even at 67 or 77 they were pretty able-bodied they had a strong grip they had you know a strong fortified body and you know it's not exclusive to the tool that we created but the idea that variability is a critical idea to consider too much variability for the body is chaos and we would argue too little variability is rigidity right so the idea of readiness as a global concept is rooted into a certain dosage of variability and we can lens that variability in different ways so one could say to me you know michelle what's the best posture out there is it you know perfect anatomical neutral and i would say no because even if you held that for too long that's no good in fact one could argue that the best posture is the one that changes intermittently throughout the day Right? And so sitting even at a desk or standing at a stand-up desk uh, with perfect anatomical neutral posture is not a great idea in a, as a long-term strategy. Because even with perfect posture, the body needs a change of posture, which is movement, in order to be viable. Right, And think about bedridden individuals or think about people that don't move that much. You know, they... There's a stat out there that goes with, you know, fractures, hips in older adults. Statistically, if someone breaks their hip as an older adult, they are, they are dead within two years. And that stat is rooted not in the broken hip. It's rooted in the fact that I've got trepidation and anxiety around movement again, because after my broken hip, I realized I broke that hip because I fell and I fell because I was moving or I fell because I was standing and I lost my balance and I so the idea of anxiety and trepidation around moving again then uh, dovetails into this notion that I don't want to move as much. And with lack of movement, my physiology decays very rapidly. And so, you know, the idea of healthy dosage of movement is intermittently throughout the day, which, you know, is a fundamental tenet of the blue zones, uh, and the change of posture. The same thing can be true with variability and, you know, motor uh, control and motor learning. So the cliche is if you're a parent of a youngster, try to get that youngster to play a lot of sports before they specialize. Because nervously, you know, a new and novel movement tasks spark growth in the neural net. And that variability of movement actually is very good to establish a broad base of movement repertoire and movement literacy. So variability is good for posture in a certain dosage. It's also quite good as it relates to movement within a certain dosage. And then we can look at even metabolic, what's called in the research, metabolic flexibility. And there's this notion that if we can use different fuels in our, in our metabolism, which is called substrates, uh, the variability of those substrates are actually very good. Right, so metabolic flexibility, which is moving from one fuel source or one substrate to the next with ease, is linked to overall health. Right, so if someone is metabolically flexible, they can go from burning sugars to burning fats, which is beta oxidation within the Krebs cycle, which requires date, uh, different rate limiting enzymes and different uh, catabolic uh, activity within the, the Krebs citric acid cycle. Even using proteins within the Krebs cycle, 
uh, and that's known as oxidative transamination and oxidative deamination, is also very good because, again, they use different enzymes, different rate-limiting steps in order to use that fuel uh, in the Krebs cycle. That makes an individual more ready. So taking a look at metabolic flexibility or variability of fuel is very important. And the way we do that is you train at different intensities. Now, what's interesting about the fitness industry is that we operate typically with sound bites. You know, fitness and fashion are subject to trends. And, you know, trends of the day will dictate, you know, aspects and programs of the day. Uh, but what we would argue is that actually using different, um, uh, different activities, different intensity levels, and different forms of metabolic training uh, are very critical to long-term success and sustainability of an in individual. But what the fear, I believe, is, is that aerobic exercise or using proteins as fuel is going to kill a person's gains. And what we might offer as a different viewpoint is mm, yes and no. Uh, if we're looking at interference, which is if I'm using aerobic activity as a mode of, of exercise, uh, that will block, in the short term, that'll block a signaling, a cell signaling pathway uh, that allows the body to get, to, to grow, to, to replicate cells. And that pathway is called mTOR. And so as aerobic activity increases, cellular respiration increases, it blocks mTOR activity and pathways. But it blocks it for about six to 12 hours, depending on you know, kind of the, the expression of that pathway. So in that short term, it may inhibit the mTOR pathway from expressing. But what it also does do though, is it opens up uh, aerobic means of metabolism, which opens up different pathways like PGC1-alpha and AMPK and all these other pathways that allow for an increased production of mitochondria within the cell. And that kind of cellular respiration, that mitochondrial biogenesis, allows the cell a potential to last longer. So yes, in the short term, in those hours, there's interference. But over the long term, we are creating readiness with an individual that allows them an opportunity to bend without breaking to different types of stressors, to different types of perturbations within the body. So looking at it very isolated, we could look at it in the short term and say, wow, you know, our, our interference is blunting results. But in the long term, over the long term, it's harder to make that argument when the person is actually more flexible in moving from one fuel source to the next. Because what that does do is it increases system readiness. And a system that is more ready is more ready to bend to stressors and adapt to stressors. So the net effect is we're making a more ready biological system that can actually yield to physiological or you know, environmental stressors and it can bounce back with more rigor. And that's the idea of sustainability. That's the idea of being unbreakable. That is the idea of health and human performance. Because we can look at the performance gains of high intensity exercise as an example.
but we can look at the consequence on cytokines and those cytokines that are released when you do high intensity exercise and we can make a case that they're immunosuppressing so there is a short-term detriment to the immune system uh, if we are engaging in a certain bout that increases performance outcomes and if we're chronically overreaching in that way of high intensity then we are chronically increasing interleukin-6 activity and everything else that could have a detrimental consequence on, uh, in this example, on immune response. So at that point, when looked at it from a performance and a health perspective, we tend to program differently. It doesn't mean that we avoid high-intensity exercise. It means we undulate it in a way that is equally respectful of health as well as human performance. So with IOM, that's what we look at. We're an applied health and human performance company. Right? And what we look at is, what is the effects of health short and long-term? What is the effects of performance? And can we actually create a logic, a solution, a viewpoint and programming around both of those things? And when we do, that becomes more of a long-term kind of per, uh, perspective on a person's ability to be well or achieve a fitness or performance outcome as long as they want to achieve it. The other side of it is, you know, how many of us know the anecdotal story of the athlete that was bigger, stronger, faster in their 20s and early 30s and broken at 40? That's not, from a coaching perspective, that's not a good scenario. Because if I had to quit something that I love to do because my engine ran too hot or wore out too quickly, that's no good, right? As a coach, you know, what I want for others is what they want for as long as they wanna do it. Now, in some forms, that's unattainable long-term because, you know, there's a natural decay of physiology as we age, we get it. But the analogy is that we wanna die, and I, I recently read this meme, which is good. We wanna die as young as we can as late as we can and what that means is you know you want your physiology to age slowly and you want to be young physiologically at an old age right and so that's kind of the the nexus of what we want to achieve i think is this idea of performance but sustainable so that we can also achieve health outcomes that allow us the the ability to age well and the ability for us to bend without without breaking you know, so in a nutshell, that's kind of how we look at things in the scope of, you know, IOM certainly, and, and certainly it's had its effects, um, you know, within Viper and Viper Pro. Oh my gosh, this is brilliant. A uh, lot of great feedback, just Michelle folks uh, posting comments in here. They're absolutely loving this. And I want to remind the listeners out there, uh, Type your questions in, okay? Because we're going to be getting to those. By the way, just to throw out there, Dr. Leslie Stinger is on the call. She's part of our certification board here at PTA Global, and she wanted to let us know that she unloaded 45 bales of hay earlier today. So she's thinking about it differently now. <laughs> I love it. I never would have guessed Leslie had horses. Let, let, let me keep on that just really quickly on that. Like as she went through her bales of hay, what's kind of cool about that was that because of life and because of where she had to grab those bales of hay and where she had to put them, life would have required variability as a default because her rep schemes couldn't have been the same from one rep to the next because she had to pick up a different bale from a different part of that 
haystack. And she would have had to have placed it in a different place on that wagon or in another you know, stack of, of, of pile, wherever she's putting that. And life requires variability as a natural mechanism of doing things. So our, for thousands of years, our biology has used that profile of loading as a way to create adaptation. And so, you know, if we were to film her doing that, not one rep would look like the other rep previous. And I know it looks different in the gym, and I know that there's unique outcomes that ensue, but what I think what I'm trying to get at is let's not forget the wisdom of the, the idea of variability and the idea of non-repetitive tasks as and actually uh, consider it alongside of these repetitions that we tend to do in the gym. They both have merit to be able to consider uh, as we as we kind of you know look at how we adopt strategies for folks. Love it, love it, absolutely, absolutely. Now, Michelle, uh, you know you've been uh, in the involved with the industry in many aspects for for a number of years now, and you know, and I completely. Uh, the older I get, the more I realize when you talk about resiliency. Um, just how important it becomes, right? I think we all kind of think we're unbreakable at 20, uh, but it doesn't take long uh, to realize just how important it is to train for the sport of life. That being said, being that you've been involved with the fitness industry or coached uh, coaches, uh, been a part of programming, what would you say, uh, based on your observation of seeing programming, seeing personal trainers, coaches, not to say anything is wrong because uh, Praise God, there's people out there moving and and proactively moving and trying to do something with themselves and coaches that are helping them do that. But based on what you've seen, what would you say is something that uh, would be a really good aha for those coaches to be, you know, here's just a little tip. Here's something to consider beyond what you've explained. If, if we were to try to kind of root it down, simplify it and say, maybe consider this in your programming for the people that you're training and, and universally, not not sports specific, you know, and, uh, and, and, you know, training a basketball player, training a football player. What do you see that the trainers uh, are doing that maybe they could add something into their programming to to basically address exactly what you've been telling us about? Uh, I've got three things I'd like to kind of maybe tee up on. I, I mean, before I get to those, maybe the first thing is to echo what you just said, which is the ability and the spirit with which people go in and want to help others and be serviced, uh, of service to others, I think should be first and foremost recognized and acknowledged. You know, as I go down this industry and I understand and I realize that the passion that individuals have within fitness and and, uh, and coaching is rooted in this idea that I want to help others. That tr tremendous. I mean, that that should be acknowledged. And, you know, we need more of that out there. So that's the first you know kind of thing that I want to maybe echo what you just said. The other one is the caution around dogmatic thinking. You know, I know that there is a tendency to kind of set up a camp and we, we look at certain ideologies as being the truths. Um, what I've learned humbly in, in looking at and studying biology and talking to others is that biology is pretty darn complex <laughs> and it's pretty amazing at getting an outcome through different paths, right? In other words, what may work for you may work for me, uh, but other ways that I do things could also work for me. 
and it may be different than what you're doing. So if that's nutritionally, if that's you know from a program perspective of, of fitness training, um, the, there is there is infinite complexity in terms of how the body can get stuff done, and that makes it pretty hard for us to anchor into one road as being the best road, because I don't know that the body would see it that way at all. Um, and so that that would be one is that. I would caution the idea of ideological or dogmatic thinking uh, as a way to say that this is, you know, the best or this is the, you know, the way to do things. You know, there, there, are, there are a variety of different ways. And I would argue that in looking at different ways, it might be in the variability context, it might be a really nice outcome to create readiness. So that would be one thing that I would encourage. The other one is preparatory measures, right? So if we look at how we warm people up. If we look at even if we can take a day to bulletproof or to make an, a body unbreakable, what does that actually entail? And so a lot of times we look at you know, foot mechanics, we look at hip mechanics, we look at thoracic spine as being areas of the body that we can address uh, in terms of joint motions. Uh, as of late through Viper Pro, we've been looking at a lot of breathing patterns, which I'll explain in a second, and a lot of eyes as a way to prep the individual. So what we will typically do is we will go through activation sequences. And we do this with IOM and some of our uh, education is that if we activate an individual, how is that best done? So we look at fluid dynamics first. So you know, can we actually set the conditions of the tissues upright, number one, first? And we do that through a variety of different ways, right? So we can do that through heat. We can do that through mechanical moving of tissues uh, and fluids within tissues. So we're looking at water. We're looking at proteoglycans. We're looking at glucoaminoglycans. We're looking at setting the, the tissues, the conditions of the tissues up right. From there, we're looking at what we might call small motor unit recruitment. Can we actually get the, the nervous system and the muscles, those motor units that are closest to the joint, can we get their thresholds activated in a way that creates better arthrokinematics and better joint centration? So we do that through, in a lot of cases, through the, the mechanisms, if we're talking about the core, through the mechanisms of breathing. So if I was to have a bunch of fitness people in front of me and I say, hey, listen, what, you know, what muscles are really good to warm up? Most might say the glutes, right? And so we would go through a, a protocol of warm up the glutes and glute bridges may be a a default exercise that people kind of rally around. And so when we do glute bridges and we do these types of things, there are two outcomes that typically are seen with clients. There's an outcome that uh, with a certain segment of clients that can do it, right? So they've got motor literacy to be able to do it. And then there's this other group that for whatever reason, they can't do it. So you see reciprocal uh, inhibition or synergistic dominance within the erector spinae muscles and the hamstrings and not their glutes. And so the hamstrings begin to cramp and the quads begin to burn. And the question from the fitness professional is, do you feel it in the glutes? And they say, no, I just feel it in these peripheral other muscles. And so in, in an attempt to help the client, one uh, aspect could be I can cue it. And the more internal I get and the more specific I get, the more confusing it might be to a person who doesn't have good you know, movement literacy. So it's too complex to get too internal too quickly. So the outcome is I feel more of a hamstring cramp and I don't really feel it in my glutes at all. So what we tend to do is to say, okay, 
that's too specific and we need to give it a different motor task or a different um, movement to get the muscles to respond a different way. So that's an example of the glutes. If I move to the deep core, one could argue that those deep core muscles are just as important as the glutes. And maybe an argument could be made that they're even more important to the glutes as muscles or segments of the body that need to be warmed up effectively to create spinal segmental stability. So if I said to a group of fitness professionals, hey, try to contract consciously your multifidus, I think even all of us that have decent motor literacy would be challenged by trying to contract these paraspinal muscles consciously. So the way we do it is through breathing and not just breathing normally, but what we call forced breathing, which is forced inhalation or forced exhalation. So consider this, accessory breathing muscles are primarily stability muscles. So if I was to force my breath, push more air out than normal, inhale more air than normal. I'm gonna call upon these accessory breathing muscles that are primarily stability muscles. So if I try to breathe out all of my air, sooner or later, as I try to force more and more air out, more and more of my intercostals are gonna fire, more and more of my serratus posterior is gonna fire, my, you know, kind of my paraspinal muscles are gonna fire, my TVA, all four layers of the TVA are gonna fire, my diaphragm, oddly enough, during exhalation is not going to fire. So it's going to create what's called diaphragmatic sparing, which is really, really good to get hoop tension in the thoracolumbar fascia, and which is really good for the glutes and, and lats to anchor into to save my hamstring strains. So that is really good as a mechanism. So that is forced exhalation. Forced inhalation, of course, is diaphragm and uh, you know these upper cervical muscles. So they're also important to facilitate as a as a product of forced breathing. So we use force inhalation and force exhalation to essentially create a task that allows accessory breathing muscles, which are primarily core stability muscles, to fire. And we do it in different positions. So we would pre-position it. So if I'm a golfer and I knew that at the point of transformation in my backswing, which is during my backswing before I end my backswing and start my actual swing, if at that point of transformation, that point of, you know, the limit of my backswing before I start to swing towards the ball, I held that and I did force inhalation and exhalation. What my nervous system is now recognizing is a limited amount of threat because what I'm posturally doing is in that point of position, I'm creating stability. I'm creating stability by virtue of using breathing as a mechanism to create shape stability in that what we might call odd position, but it ain't odd if you're a golfer because that's my backswing. That is my point of going from my backswing to my actual you know, swing towards the ball. And so whatever my endeavors are, we're pre-positioning the individual and prepping them for the task at hand. So we go through these prep protocols in order to create an unbreakable uh, body or as unbreakable as we possibly can. And what we've had is we've taken these prep protocols and they usually take about five to 15 minutes, depending on how involved you wanna be. And what's interesting to us is when we get them through these four steps of our activation, which is really about fluid dynamics, step number one, small motor unit recruitment, which I explained right now, which is step number two, excitation, which is teaching the muscles to turn on and off quick. So we're teaching muscles to actually turn off quick. 
uh, which is all about readiness. And then the last one is stimulation. These four steps, when we walk a person through this, that is typically met with, I, and they usually use an expletive, which is in, interesting to me. They usually say something like, I am effing ready to run 110% right now. Right? And that expletive is actually important because it, what it tells me and them is, wow, I am ready to go. And I'm ready to go 110%. And it didn't take particularly long because we stacked you know, these, these efforts, these, um, these activation efforts on top of each other. So that prep work can actually become a whole session of you know, the anatomy of a program. So if we look at the third aspect of what I might encourage people to lean into is the idea of programming, not in the you know, kind of the periodization model for an athlete, unless that's who you're, te you're teaching and interacting with, but even in the regular client, right? Which is what days are workouts and what days are work-ins? And if you're thinking about a work-in day, is it just arbitrarily a day off? Or is it a day of structured recovery whereby you're actually going in and doing something structured? But it's not stress-inducing necessarily. It's all about safeguarding against cumulative overreaching. And you're actually now programming recovery. So the idea there is you're programming recovery so that you can enhance parasympathetic involvement, you can enhance system recovery so that not necessarily you can push yourself harder, although that could be one example, but that you can recover. So let me use this as an example. Many individuals that people deal with are living a life where they have a, let's say their capacity of life, just stressors and everything else, is a four gallon or four liter tank, right? Depending on what area of the world you're in, we're gonna use metric and, and imperial. So you've got that four liter or four gallon tank, and that is your capacity, right? Of just cumulative stress. But how many of us are living and we're filling that four liter or four gallon tank with five liters or five gallons of stuff, of fluid? And that's called life. It could be stressors at work. It could be, you know, I love a certain style of exercise and I'm going to dig into it hard. It could be relationship stressors. It could be, you know, all sorts of different things, right? Lack of sleep. All of these things accumulate into five gallons or liters of fluid. So what happens is if you fill five liters or gallons of fluid in a four liter tank and there's, there's overflow everywhere. So that is what people experience. General malaise, fatigue. I can't keep up with things. Life is, you know, that all of that could be analogous to this situation. So the idea of now programming working work in sessions is to now build a capacity of a seven liter or seven gallon tank. In other words, hey, Dan, let's build you a seven gallon tank, right? And it's not to suggest now that you can now fill it with more stuff. It's to suggest <laughs> that what happens is, Dan, live the life that you're living right now. It's five liters or five gallons of stuff, get it. But if we can build a seven gallon or seven liter capacity for you, then you're gonna live your life with five liters or five gallons. Guess what that means? You got two gallons of overflow. What that means is I feel better. I feel more capable. I feel like life is slowing down. I feel, you know, fill in the dots. And what we do as a health coach or as a fitness professional, is we index towards recovery to build a bigger capacity. In this analogy, it's a tank. 
And the way we do that is programming. We're going to program workouts, which are stress, and we're going to program work-ins. And I think what the industry, the fitness industry, is leaning into for the first time is recovery. We've all heard it now. There's all these recoveries from lights to sound to sleep to compression techniques to binaural beats to all of these things are in our ether in terms of how we recover. What has not been spoken about just yet is how you put all of those things together. Because those are what we call protocols, right? And just like a bench press and a sprint and a, you know, what those are all protocols. How we actually put those protocols together is going to be very meaningful to outcomes. So when do we actually want to get rid of inflammation? And when do we not in terms of recovery? Because there are periods where we're not going to want to get rid of inflammation if there is a period of gains being needed for an individual. Because as we know, acute inflammation is a precursor for protein synthesis. So getting rid of it too quickly is actually getting rid of the signaling that is required to make gains, right? In this case, cross-sectional area of muscle. So there are different protocols in order for us to think about in terms of how and when we might recover in certain key ways. And so the idea of working out and working in become a recognizable map within a programming construct, within decision trees that need to be had by a health coach or a fitness professional, and what needs to be mapped into an overall programming, uh, a, a overall map of programming that an individual can look at. Now, what's kind of cool is our team has just created a program builder on this. And I know that there's a lot of workout builders on there on, on web-based platforms and app-based platforms, but our web app is actually a program builder. So the decision trees that we go through are ones that involve what I just talked about. When do we stress and when do we recover? How do we stress and how do we recover? And all of that is indexed by virtue of not an exercise library, but a program or a protocol library. And that protocol library can inform stress, like bench press and running and you know, band distraction techniques and you know, all these types of things that we might look at in fitness and stress, but it also equally looks at recovery and recovery protocols. It looks at metabolic flexibility, it looks at mechanical variability, and it looks at uh, recovery. And we do that for through things like 4Q. For those that have, are familiar with it, with IOM, we've got three 4Q models. One is a 4Q for neuromechanical, which is how we stress and how we move the body. Uh, 4Q metabolic is how we can metabolically influence stress into the system. And then our 4Q recovery is a way to program and model recovery schemes. So, you know, I would encourage those three elements, you know, kind of a, a non-dogmatic view of looking at things, the idea of prep and how we actually can induce preparatory measures through activating sequences, and then this idea of working out and working in as being critically important for health and human performance. I love it. And for the listeners out there, 4Q is four quadrant. And uh, one of the great things about Michelle, as you can tell when you're listening to him speak, extremely intelligent, um, uh, speaking at a level that clearly he knows what he's talking about. But when you know you're looking at the programming and using uh, the the techniques such as a 4Q model, it's very easy to understand. Um, you know, uh, I think it was Scott 
believe, uh, but one of the co-founders, one of the things that, that we said at PTA Global is making the complex simple. And um, based on what I've seen in my understanding, uh, the 4Q models, they certainly are. It's taking the complex, all that knowledge that Michelle and his team have and making it, uh, putting it into a program that somebody like myself can understand and apply uh, to be able to you know, assist those folks with resiliency, with unbreakability, uh, what I like to call being limitless. Um, so great stuff. Michelle, I'm going to take a few minutes here now and uh, address some questions. I appreciate all the listeners out there uh, that are dropping them in. There's also a lot of comments, a lot of uh, uh, great comments uh, from folks saying, uh, so proud. They're very, very happy to hear you speak. Uh, brilliant. Michael says, you know, you're brilliant. I, I agree. Um, let's, let's grab a few questions. So, Here's a really important one because you just finished talking about it. Dominique asks, Dominique asks, what is the name of your program or your app or your platform? Can you maybe share with the, the listeners how they would find it? Uh, yeah, so our program builder is uh, a web app. It's actually going through its final iteration before it is uh, kind of, I would say, released. Uh, and what we're looking at is what you just said, Dan, which is how do we make things simple? And one of the ways in which we can make the 4Q model simple is there are four quadrants, but what it also does is it allows for visual equity. So every exercise, every protocol is a data point. It is a, an area within a, a four quadrant scheme. Imagine a plus sign in front of you in your mind's eye. That is a data point. So, and what that informs over time are signatures, heat maps, if you will. And a very easy way is to look at it and say, where are your cluster of data points? Where are your cluster of protocols? And is that conducive to where your person is in terms of readiness and what they want? Uh, so we're actually putting the final touches on that. Uh, but you can get access to that if you log on to our website, which is instituteofmotion.com. And if you go to that same website, instituteofmotion.com, you'll also see uh, a program that we're running called the AHHPS, which is an Applied Health and Human Performance Specialist. And it is a course, it's a mentoring course, that allows an individual to go through everything I talked to, uh, talked about uh, broadly in a much more detailed way. So we will use the backdrop of this program builder and then the what we call the science of resiliency taking a look at you know, the, the systems of the body and how we might look at science and strategy and then use this program builder, this, this technology, this, this, this kind of logic, if you will, this operating system. And we can use that operating system to guide an experience of health as well as human performance. And so um, thanks for that good question. Uh, I would say expect that in the next two to three weeks uh, because we we launch our first curriculum on august 10th so uh, our workout builder will is active it's live right now in in our internal forms but we will kind of shift it over to public facing within the next two weeks awesome awesome thank you again i'm the, the tons of positive feedback coming in too many for me to be able to thank everyone so thank you for all your positive feedback uh, here's one that that um, I haven't heard of, and so I'm going to uh, throw it out there. Wei Ling asks, "What do you think about blood flow restricted training? Are you familiar with that, Michelle?" Yep, you got it. Uh, yeah, so the blood flow restriction is is a 
an example of what I'm talking about in terms of the broad idea of uh, looking at health and human performance and taking a look at non-dogmatic thinking. So one of the things that we look at is, all right, if we want to increase certain aspects of outcome, but we're looking at health as well as human performance, Blood, blood flow restriction is what it suggests, which is, you know, you're taking a compression wrap and, you know, you're occluding blood flow to a certain area of the body. And what we're finding is that through research, we're finding that there are certain adaptive processes that happen cardiovascularly uh, from blood, oxidi uh, blood oxygenation, as well as certain uh, hormones that may be released. So one of the suggestions in research is that by doing this, there is an increase of, um, um, there is an increase of uh, hormones, anabolic hormones that may ensue because of this. So if you're looking at certain athletic populations and certain non-athletic populations, is the goal to increase anabolic hormones and is the only way to do that through intense exercise? And if that were true, then if I'm 40 years old and I know that my natural testosterone begins to decrease, the only way I'm going to bring it up is through vigorous high intensity exercise but my my knees may not accommodate that so then what do i do well i can do some cold uh, interventions uh, i can do some breath holding interventions there are other things that may not in this case in this example may not beat my knees up as i try to introduce you know a different chemistry within my body to offset my natural decline of testosterone because i'm 40 plus right so these protocols are something that I could consider. So what we're going to look at, what we do look at is in our protocols of programming, whether it's blood flow restriction for, let's say, testosterone, or whether it's cold for testosterone, or, or whether it's high intensity for testosterone, we look at this through the lens of two things, health and human performance, right? So if I was to put that in, first of all, what is the protocol for blood flow restriction? What is the current research? for blood flow restriction. And is that research evidence-based or is it evidence-led? Evidence-based is there's cumulative you know, research that has been peer-reviewed and generally accepted within the scientific community. And that's, that's good. What that requires is typically trailing research of at least five to 10 years. So current, so what happens is current, let's say more innovative practices are very rarely evidence-based because they're too new. They have to be studied. And so in academia, rightfully so, they're thrown out until they're rigorously tested. And I, I understand that, and that's right. What it does do, though, is do we actually throw everything out just because it doesn't have trailing research? I would say not necessarily if there is strong evidence that some of these interventions actually have some good outcomes. And what we would say is that's evidence-led. And evidence-led would say, there is evidence to suggest that there is some positive impact with these things. However, more research is needed to really fully understand everything. So what we do is we, we tread with caution when it's evidence-led, but we don't, we don't necessarily abandon that thinking right away because we recognize that more research is needed. And with more research, two things are gonna happen. One, it validates things and we're gonna use it, or it sheds more light on it then if there is some egregiousness to it, then we caution even further or we abandon that protocol entirely. So, you know, that's what we look at. And so there is a lot of research that is coming out on techniques like blood flow restriction that suggests there is some benefit. 
And there's benefit in, in many ways, oxygenation-wise, as well as hormone profile-wise. And so we adopt these as potential protocols, and they actually come into our list of protocols. So think about a workout builder that has an exercise library. Our program builder has a protocol library, and blood flow restriction is in that library. And so we will teach the the evidence, and you know we're lucky that we hinge our cart to a lot of PhDs, uh, and many of them we task with you know digging the research and looking at what's been evidence led and what's evidence based on that. So that's an example of one of many. Wow, that is excellent. I had no idea, and uh, I'm glad uh, Wei Ling you you asked that question because I think a lot of us learned a lot. Uh, the last one I'm gonna I'm gonna throw in here, just to be respectful of everybody's time. I know if you're like me, I could listen to Michelle all day long. Uh, we're gonna jump companies here. So your other company, Viper Pro, uh, Michael says uh, that he's a big fan. Love using him in water for prehab and rehab. Yep. Is there aquatic programming available? Yeah, it's coming. Uh, so nice thing about aquatic programming is that again, so Viper's Viper Pros. Uh, the way we redesigned it is they're they're actually a little bit more rigid. So those that know the previous version and then the new kind of 2.0 version, they're more rigid. And the reason why they're more rigid is because we we do different things with them. One of which we go into a different medium, i.e. water, and we want to accelerate them uh, in water without them having to flex necessarily. And yeah. so we have different weight profiles. We different have we have different size profiles. And so two things begin to happen. So our aquatic programs uh, are being are being constructed as we speak, and they will they will be released. We do it for a lot of different cohorts. But if I'm older, again, the idea of me as 40, and I don't want to beat up my knees, I can go in water, and I can increase intensity, and my knee pressure goes way off. So I can now create mTOR or I can create acidosis in my blood, which triggers all sorts of kind of building capabilities, bigger, stronger, faster capabilities, then I want to, I may offset with my aging physiology without beating up my joints because I've got 40 year old joints or in my case, 47 year old joints. And so it offers me a respite for the gravity ground reaction scenario that is just constantly beating up my body. So I can create high intensity outcomes or I can go in the water and do some other protocols that are more restorative in nature. And the hydrostatic pressure actually aids venous return. It aids hydrostatic or interstitia uh, health within and between my cells and my body. And there is more of a restorative aspect. So I can work out and I can work in, in the pool. And if you're an athlete and you're in your competitive season right now in your periodization, what a great way to increase the capacity later on in the season, i.e. in playoffs and everything else. Well, you have cumulative stress load of an entire season on that athlete. You take them into water more and more later in that season because you can still push, but you don't have cumulative stress load where it's not needed, i.e. reps on a body that's already repped out near the end of the season. So you can work on skill building and everything else. So yeah, Viper Pro uh, programming in water is coming up uh, and we're super excited about it because it's it's one of the limited tools that you can actually use that's weight based in water you can push it out of water you can put it in water the four kg floats every other weight except the 10 sinks so buoyancy and you know kind of gravity you can use it in, in, in dual tasks so good, good question excellent thank you Michelle and and uh 
Let's see. Uh, Beth says, wow, I'm an aqua instructor. Never knew they could go in water. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, that uh, when I first learned of, of the, the Viper from, from Rodney, uh, the club we worked out at, we'd go and jump in the pool with those things and have all kinds of fun um, utilizing them, which I ended up doing with my clients. Now, uh, with that, as much as I'd love to continue, I want to be respectful of everybody's calendars and schedules and don't want to, uh, folks having to drop off. Um, important to know that this will be recorded. It is being recorded. It will be available on our websites. Tell your friends, uh, ptglobal.com under events, and then it's also being converted to a podcast. So it'll be available there. Um, again, to learn more, and I would encourage you to, from uh, MicheleInstituteOfMotion.com uh, website for, for Viper Vi Pro. Is it Vi Viper Pro? No, well, you can do that, but Viper.com is easier. So V-I-P-R.com, Viper.com. Viper.com, uh, two main places you're going to be able to, to learn more, find education, find equipment, you know, keep adding tools to your tool, tool belt. I do hope uh, that we have the opportunity to, to have inter, uh, Michelle on again, uh, because again, I could listen to this all day. Uh, it reminds me of conversations uh, with Rod where I just want to just sit and listen, uh, but being respectful of everybody's time. Um, those of you uh, on, the, on the call, I want to thank you all so much for, for dialing in, uh, for logging in, for taking time out of your day, your Friday, perhaps your work day, uh, to make time to sharpen your saw, uh, to learn a little bit more, and to be able to share that passion. Like Michelle and I said, you know, uh, you are soldiers. We are soldiers on the front lines, battling disease, disease, uh, battling uh, so many things. Every one of us can easily count on on our hands people we know who are either in a bad place or we've lost because they didn't do the things that here we are talking about and preaching. Uh, on a daily basis and so thank you for being those soldiers on the front lines you are saving lives mine was one of them um, you know we it's not just about adding muscle and losing fat we're literally saving lives out there so I want to thank you for that and with that Michelle would you like to close us with any uh, imparting words of wisdom no just echo that uh, you know I think the greatest gift is servitude so you know recognizing who we're coming in service uh, of and recognizing that you know we've got we're blessed to be able to do that and and so that that always strikes me as being impactful you know the everybody that has a willingness a drive and a passion uh, to help others is something that i see time and time again within the industries of health and fitness and that's always been an inspiration you know i um i was I had a past relationship that she was a lawyer and going into the, you know, legal firms, you got your head, a lot of lawyers heads down low and always dealing with friction, always dealing with combative situations, always thinking about how would someone argue certain things. And that's, you know, that's what lawyers have to do. And, and you know, I, I recognize that. But I also see the, the net effects of that is, you know, thinking about that all day long takes a toll. And you know, I just saw it in that environment and it was sharply contrasted against the environment that I was exposed to, which was people that were enthusiastic, people that were passionate about serving others. And, and I, I just would echo that is, that is perhaps one of the greatest gifts we have is, is the gift of servitude. So with that, you know, I just thank you for your time, Dan, and I appreciate everybody's time out there as well. And, and I thank, thank you for the comments and the questions. 
All right, thank you all very much. Uh, you will be receiving an email in about an hour with more follow-up information. Uh, tune in next week. We will continue doing these on Fridays for as long as we can. And again, uh, have a fantastic week weekend. Be safe out there. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you all. Thanks, Signing out from PTA Global.